I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore the intersection of science, technology, philosophy, and culture. Thank you for the feedback I received on last week's episode, which was episode number one for the Techno Slipstream Podcast. Currently, we're doing a multi-episode series of podcasts on the theme of automation, and in episode one, we did a deep dive into a new book called Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Benenev. In today's episode, we'll continue with our automation theme, but as a segue to a historical look at industrial automation in the U.S. after World War II, I want to first discuss an interesting recent story I read about in Bloomberg relating to remote work. Since the pandemic hit over a year ago, many of us have been working from our homes, which is sometimes called remote work, to distinguish it from office work. We've all been working, and some of us more now than in the before times, but that we are working from home as opposed to our corporate assigned desk is significant because it strains the management worker interface, and that interface is what will be in the background throughout this episode. Of course, not everyone had the option of working from home, but especially for many knowledge work types of jobs, like software development, help desk and customer service, sales, teaching, writing and editing, graphics design, accounting, and even some management positions, remote work not only was possible, but offered many advantages such as not having to commute to the office each day, wasting time just sitting in traffic. Many of us were even more productive in our jobs. Some of us had flexibility in where our office was located and what it looks like. And we often had more effective meetings. And some of us ended up with better work-life balance. And of course, during the pandemic, it was safer working from home especially with workplaces and state governments that didn't take employee health and safety seriously. Now, there are some challenges with remote work, of course. Childcare services in the U.S. are poor. So while your children and pets certainly probably benefited from you working at home, taking care of your children and working at the same time was difficult. Also, if you had multiple people working or taking classes in the same house, Configuring sufficient workspaces was likely tricky. And again, some people did not have the opportunity or option of working from home. But while having to work from home was initially a shock, after a year of doing it, many of us found that, on the whole, working from home offered more positives than negatives. And so now that the pandemic, at least in the U.S., seems to be slowly easing up as more people get their vaccines, employers are starting to want their employees back in the office. Not all employers, some companies are realizing that for them too, there are remote work benefits, such as saving on office space, higher employee morale and productivity, and larger employee recruitment pools. But some employers just want us all to go back to the way things were, with employees commuting to work each day, sitting in a chair, in an office, and then returning back home. And that employer vision of us all returning back to normal is conflicting with the employees who now realize there's actually a different and better way to work. 
I think this conflict is perfectly illustrated by a recent Bloomberg article titled, Employees Are Quitting Instead of Giving Up Working From Home. In the article, a research compliance specialist named Portia Twitt in Marietta, Georgia, who had been working from home during the pandemic, recently started getting more and more requests from her employer to come back to the office. So finally, when the employer asked Portia to attend a very important in-person meeting, she searched for and arranged for daycare for her children, drove to the daycare facility to drop them off, commuted to her workplace, all in order to attend this very important meeting. In the end, the very important in-person meeting lasted a total of six minutes. And with that, Portia quickly found another job with another company who was willing to honor her remote work request. According to the article, Portia is not alone in quitting jobs with this sort of management thinking that was not able to adapt to this new reality. But that's the real issue here, right? New reality, according to whom? Portia said that with some managers, quote, they feel like we're not working if they can't see us. It's a boomer power play. Well, until the pandemic, the main arbiter of what was reasonable was the employer. However, now that employees have seen that there are other options, other ways to work, it seems that there is some conflict today over just who determines what are reasonable workplace demands. So as we touched on in the last podcast episode, the introduction of technologies can alter how we do our work. With remote work, technologies such as the internet and email, of course, video conferencing software such as Zoom, and cloud-based storage and office platforms such as Google Drive and Google Docs change not just how we can do our work, but where we can do our work. We've had those technologies available now for some time, and some people have noted and taken advantage of the flexibilities and how and where work was done. But the pandemic really accelerated the adoption of these technologies and practices, pushing remote work into the mainstream. So in this example we just discussed with Portia Twitt, there is the question, why wouldn't the manager let the employee attend the meeting via Zoom instead of having to deal with all the hassles and wasted time and money just to attend a six-minute meeting in person. That question illustrates how technology is often at the center of manager-worker conflicts, because the purpose of technology can be viewed differently by management and by workers. So to get a better understanding of the various forces and factors in play regarding these sorts of technology-management-worker dynamics, I wanted to focus today's episode on diving into what can be considered a classic exploration of technology manager worker dynamics. The book Forces of Production, a social history of industrial automation by author David Noble. So let's dive in. David Noble was born in 1945 and died in 2010 and was a historian who tended to write about technology and innovation with a critical eye, especially using social and political interpretations. Originally published in 1984, David Noble's book, Forces of Production, had a polarized reception and went out of print, though over time, interest in the book was built up and it was republished in 2011 and 2017. I read the 2017 edition. 
I consider this to be a classic text that focuses on the social construction of numeric control machine tool technologies in the U.S. after World War II up to about the 1970s. It's sweeping and comprehensive, totaling a little over 400 pages, so I won't step through the entire book like I did with Automation and the Future of Work in Episode 1. Instead, I'll try to provide a brief summary of the book, then focus on the management worker dynamics the book informs that I think are relevant in today's remote work world. So I think in American society, there's a distinct veneration and objectification of technology. Maybe in a future episode, we can explore this relationship more. But if you look especially at Silicon Valley, there is a distinct narrative that our human potential is unlocked only with technology. One of the overarching themes in the book, however, is that social relations influence technological designs and choices. The context for where the book starts is the success, exuberance, and possible conceit of the U.S. at the end of World War II. A feeling of the potential for progress was in the air, and technology was to be the literal machinery that would take us into the future. In particular, automatically controlled machine tools were seen as a way to modernize the manufacturing industry itself. After World War II, the U.S. was a winner of world wars, and making machine tools that could automatically create machine parts instead of relying on a human machinist would be a way to transform the U.S. into a manufacturing world leader. Note that the focus on the promise of new technologies, such as automatically controlled machine tools, distracts from the more hidden agenda in industry. As noted in the book, then General Electric President Charles Wilson said in 1946 that the U.S. has two enemies, quote, Russia abroad and labor at home. So the American worker was seen as an enemy to be defeated by management. In the case of automatic machine tools, the point was to remove the power and control wielded by the machinists and other shop floor workers. To make machine parts, management depended on the machinists and other shop floor workers, because only the machinists had the experience, knowledge, and skills to design the parts and work the equipment. Also, humans made errors, called in sick, and perhaps most irritating to management, could pace the work, meaning purposely work slowly or sabotage the equipment to limit productivity in protest of management. However, after World War II, the U.S. military especially wanted to invest in technologies that required extreme parts precision, such as for making fighter planes. And the government in general was motivated in part by Vannevar Bush's report setting the program for post-war science research called Science the Endless Frontier. This energy and funding towards new technology development programs directly conflicted with the presumption of union labor strikes now that the war was over, leading to volatile conflicts between management and union workers. Executives are quoted in the book as saying, Quote, unions are not good for management. It interrupts our efficiency to have to be in constant state of defense against the threat of the use of force. And we worked for years to eliminate chance in our operations. Now, here it comes back in a big way. A new and unpredictable element has been injected into our business. Two movements began to address these issues. First, inspired by the division of labor theory from Adam Smith, work processes were divided and simplified. Second, more jobs were automated. 
These two approaches helped management gain more control and power over the workplace, but tended to reduce worker salaries, skills needed to perform their jobs, called de-skilling, and the satisfaction gained from their work. A great quote from the book is, quote, Men behaving like machines pave the way for machines without men. Over time, as jobs were eliminated due to work simplification and automation, finding skilled labor became more difficult, which amplified the need for more automation. The automation process itself resulted in a greater dependence on engineers, as opposed to shop floor workers, to make and program these automation systems. And these engineers worked more closely with management than the shop floor workers to design more effective technological controls, at that time being based on electronics, computers, and servo mechanisms. In the machine tool industry, the effort to implement automatic industrial controls was motivated by management's desire to build into the tools themselves. Machines such as lathes, milling machines, drills, and planers, the skills of the machinist. The engineers most often did not interact with the machinist, nor did they have the experience using the machine tools. Ideally, in the new systems, the machinists simply did not matter. To the engineers, automating the equipment was simply a logic puzzle to be solved with equations and programming. During that time period, there were multiple programmable machine tool automation technologies developed across a number of different companies and universities. But the one that caught on was called numerical control, or N slash C. In this system, the motions of the machine under control of the machinist when making a part were recorded either on magnetic media or on a punched paper tape. The idea with numerical control machines was similar to some older technologies you might have heard about. In the Jockard loom, punched patterns corresponded to thread color and loom actions. And in player pianos, the punched patterns indicated piano keys and musical sounds. In numerical control, the punched patterns corresponded to the calculated geometries of the parts being made, along with the needed movements of the machine components. The goal was to go from the abstract calculations of the part made by the engineer in the back office to an automatically generated part by the machine on the shop floor, eliminating the need for the machinist. In practice, a human was needed to be on hand to perform tasks, such as clearing machine jams, collecting scrap, or loading the machine with stock material, though these were skills not as sophisticated as that of a machinist. Thus, cheaper workers could be hired to tend the machines instead of the talented but expensive and temperamental machinists. According to the hype around numerical control machines at the time, Though the engineers were needed to make the calculations and create the paper tape, which cost a lot of money, once that was done, the reduced machine setup times, reduced machining times, and reduced labor costs for the workers on the shop floor should have resulted in cost reductions, parts created with higher tolerances, and higher productivity rates less vulnerable to worker sabotage and pacing. A major funder of this early work on numerical control efforts was the U.S. Air Force, which had large budgets. The book goes into a lot more detail here, but the author, David Noble, tells a fascinating story of how an early numerical control pioneer named John Parsons innovated a prototype numerical control machine and then won a contract from the Air Force to machine aircraft parts. 
However, when Parsons subcontracted engineers from the University, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, to help in fulfilling the contract, Parsons was outmaneuvered and eventually kicked off the project when the MIT engineers went around him to convince the Air Force to expand the scope of the project. The resulting numerical control system, which MIT claimed credit for creating, was way more complicated than what Parsons had envisioned, as the resulting system requirements and features were influenced by the almost unlimited budgets and extreme and unique performance needs of the military. Despite being hyped in the press as ushering in the Second Industrial Revolution and being championed by management across multiple industries, the resulting numerical control machines were overly complex, unreliable, expensive to operate, and were broken down due to mechanical, electrical, or programming problems as much as 80% of the time. In trying to assess the value of these systems, General Electric Vice President Harold Strickland said, quote, The economic feasibility of numerical control systems in many applications has not been proven, and he concluded that, our technical ability to automate exceeds our ability to prove economic feasibility. This result is particularly interesting because after World War II, businesses especially latched onto the theories of Frederick Taylor for improving industrial efficiency. Management consultant Peter Drucker said, quote, What is today called automation is conceptually a logical extension of Taylor's scientific management. Taylor preached that productivity required that doing be divorced from planning. Once operations have been analyzed as if they were machine operations and organized as such, they should be capable of being performed by machines rather than by hand. Yet, in the end, with these numerical control systems, ironically, management ended up having to depend even more on the workers. Because the numerical control systems were so expensive, In order to not lose money, the systems needed to be operated continuously, sometimes around the clock. Workers were needed to keep the systems up and running, but because of de-skilling, low pay, and being unsatisfied with jobs that were not meaningful, there were even more acts of hostility and resistance by the workers on the shop floor. Another great quote from the book summarized the overall result of these attempts at automation. Quote, numerical control systems are supposed to be like magic but all you can do automatically is produce scrap. There's a lot more in the book than I can cover in a podcast, but hopefully this has painted a rough picture of some of the history of numerical control systems and automation covered in Noble's book. For me, here are a few takeaways. One, conflicts between management and workers were exacerbated with the use of management science theory to optimize business processes. The key question, of course, is, Optimize for whom? And the answer is management, often at the expense of the workers. Two, wider societal issues also affected management worker relations, such as the hunt by Senator Joseph McCarthy at the time to find communists throughout the U.S. society. And here, worker unions were especially targeted. Three, despite the hype and use of management science theory to optimize business decisions, such as the rule of only making large investments when they are economically feasible, actually hidden variables, such as the desire by management to maintain power and control the workers, heavily influence the investments in and the design and use of numerical control systems. Four, 
The decisions in choosing and developing numerical control systems over competing technologies were influenced by the fact that the U.S. military had extreme and unique performance requirements, along with almost unlimited budgets, overriding traditional management science factors such as market needs and technical superiority. Again, these are just some of my takeaways. The details in the book provide more nuance, and I think it's worth your time to read. But let's circle this discussion back to today to tie our discussions about numerical control systems and automation to our lead story about remote work. To me, in addition to the summary points I just itemized, the case studies in the book demonstrate that technological development is social and political. For example, in one of the book's case studies, an experimental pilot program for more worker autonomy for decision-making at a GE plant was implemented on a trial run. Shop floor workers were given more meaningful jobs to do, as well as more pay. Over time, productivity and worker morale improved. But then, just as there were calls to expand the pilot program based on its success, the company pulled the plug on the experiment. The company then worked to eliminate any corporate memory of the success of the project. They also reverted back to their previous worker-hostile and worker-controlling management styles, with de-skilled job tasks for the shop floor workers, along with reduced pay. No surprise, worker morale decreased, productivity decreased, and expenses rose. These were choices made contrary to the principles of management science. Here's a quote from the book that I think could directly apply to thinking about today's remote work situation. Quote, Industrial history shows that such management attempts to control the freedom of the workforce invariably run up against the contradiction that the freedom is necessary for quality production. I enjoyed thinking about David Noble's post-war look at technology management worker dynamics, and I see parallels in today's post-pandemic technology management worker dynamics, especially related to remote work. Hopefully, companies today will realize the benefits of remote work and provide those options where possible. Considering what happened, though, with numerical control systems, companies should really be careful what variables they optimize on. And with that, we wrap up Episode 2 of the Techno Slipstream Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to subscribe. If you want more information or want to send suggestions or interesting topics that I should cover in future episodes, head over to technoslipstream.com where you can sign up for the TechnoSlipstream email newsletter. Right now, that is the main method I use for communication and feedback. And if you'd like to support the TechnoSlipstream podcast, you can head over to our Patreon page to sign up. This is a new podcast and your support is very important. I'm hosting this podcast on the Buzzsprout platform, which has a free tier that Host podcast episodes for only 90 days so I could use your support so these episodes don't get removed by the platform. But in any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, be well.